Hello, Greg Perry, the historic preservationist. We continue on with the Renaissance. Tonight's episode, Arts and Politics Across Renaissance Europe. In the Middle Ages and Renaissance, the Netherlands had yet to come into political existence. Instead, 17 provenances, referred to as the Low Countries, remained in a constant state of economic and military oppression by one of its larger neighbors. Allied with Burgundy, then Spain, and eventually England, Holland's artists and architects were funded well enough to lead the continent in using oil-based paints and the stylistic development of painting itself. The court of Burgundy often lived in Bruges and traded goods from France and Italy that came through the city regularly to attract merchants, nobles, and artists alike. While the artists of the Low Countries led the continent with oil painting, Holland's musicians were also making important discoveries, using flutes, recorders, lyres, lutes, and various brass instruments. Renaissance musicians began to place more importance on the use of their instruments than their predecessors. During the medieval musical period, the focus of the performers, writers, and audience was on human voices working in harmony. Now, the strings, bass, and woodwinds came into sharper focus. They would come to define Renaissance music for all of Europe. As it transformed literature, so did the printing press transform music. Musicians needn't hand copy every composition, nor struggle to work with other composers and performers who are musically illiterate. It quickly became easier to teach learn and share songs as well as keep records of the works of each individual composer, even when a group of musicians had trouble speaking a common language. They could recognize notes and timings on paper. More singers, musicians, and composers were hired by the church than ever before thanks to economic stability, which gave rise to the practice of wealthy estates hiring on seasonal music performers. Though it was not specifically defined by the arts, the most politically powerful nation in Europe throughout the bulk of the Renaissance era was the Holy Roman Empire, self-important due to its physical ties to ancient Rome and led by an emperor crowned by the Pope himself. It was though alliances with the empire that, that smaller kingdoms and principalities of Europe gained wealth and influence. However, as the Protestant faith spread through much of the empire's lands and neighboring states, Emperor Charles V faced continued pressure from France and the duchies to make reforms. Under his leadership, the empire's authority began to seriously wane, and the empire found itself mostly at war with itself and in defense of the Catholic faith. In the words of Florentine diplomat, humanist, writer and historian, Niccolo Machiavelli, anyone who determines to act in all circumstances, the part of a good man must come to ruin among so many who are not good. Hence, if a prince wish, wishes to maintain himself, he must learn how not to be good and to be that ability or not to be required. The quotation comes from Machiavelli's book, the Prince, published in 1532. And it is largely because of this book that the term Machiavellian 
was termed to refer to a shrewd and manipulative political figure. His theories were not pretty, but they stood the test of time, underscoring the methods used by Florentine leaders and emperors of the Holy Roman Empire. By the late 15th century, when the Medici family had fallen out of its position of authority in Florence, the Machiavelli family seized power for itself. It was a politically frightening time in which Catholic popes and the Holy Roman Empire sought to consolidate power with the remaining Italian states of Sicily and Venice. Constant infighting and international marriages between monarchs and their family members defined the time. Meanwhile, Niccolo Machiavelli pondered the best methodology by which to retain control and profit from his position. He was a unique figure in that his political theories were unidealized. That is, he explained historical and contemporary power grabs as he saw them, and simply mimicked the successful strategies of others. His written works on leadership did not strive to portray leadership as some reverent, humble state in which a man works to benefit his subjects, but rather as a position of manipulation and conquest. His lack of empathy for the lower classes and people outside of his family characterized him as somewhat an evil figure. In truth, he was a realist and a Republican who was just as influenced by humanism as many of his peers. Though it seemed to be a political turmoil, Florence was still the leader in Renaissance arts during his time. In the 16th and 17th centuries, all of Europe's capital cities were flourishing, full of music, sculpture, paintings, and their own political philosophies. Secularism in politics emerged. Humanism allowed people to discern inequitable class divides. An artist had a big, brand new subject to imagine on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. It would be a very long time before professional artists had the opportunity to visit, sketch, paint, and interact with lands outside of Europe. But that didn't stop them from visualizing them. Possibly the first European depiction of the Americas was painted by Pinacciotello, only to be forgotten under centuries of grime in its place in the Vatican. Recently restored by professionals, the picture, which ostensibly portrays the resurrection of Jesus, was discovered to feature tiny naked people in the background, adorned in feather headdresses. It was just that sort of scene that the Spanish Pope, Alexander V, would have heard and described to him from messengers from the New World. What were these figures doing in a depiction of an important biblical event? Perhaps he was simply too excited at the idea of an exotic new culture to keep his paintbrush from coloring them into life. The thrill of the notion was shared by rich and poor alike, and just as immediately touched the art world, so did the exploration of seas and lands far from Europe touch politics, religion, and the economy for centuries to come. The Age of Discovery The 15th century ushered in a 300-year period of exploration which saw European nations colonized vast regions of the outside world. The Prince of Portugal, AKK Henry the Navigator, sailed down the western and northern coasts of Africa in search of new routes 
to India and China, as well as new territories to explore. The Spanish crown sent its own explorers, as did France and England, all in a bid to become the biggest, most powerful empire since the Romans. Their first goal, however, was trade. Spices, precious metals, cotton, wheat, and slaves were the most lucrative goods on the European market at that time. And it was the hope of every ship's captain to find enough of these resources to fund forthcoming expeditions and send money home to their families. In Africa, Prince Henry of Portugal started settlements in the Azor and Madeira and sketched his country's influence across the northern coast of Africa, establishing trade routes where Asian and Muslim merchants came to trade. Portuguese merchants sold guns and brought spices, gold, ivory, and pepper. A few merchants specialized in trading guns for slaves, and later of which were captured by their own countrymen. Portugal was the, a kingdom that had already been built upon slaves, and therefore its merchant class thought very little of trading gold for human lives. In fact, in 1455, Pope Nicholas V granted Portugal explicit rights to continue the West African slave trade, so long as merchants promised to convert the captured people into Catholics. With Prince Henry in charge of every African voyage, he organized the trips so the captives were baptized before they were brought to Lisbon for sale. When criticized for their cruel methods of capture for shipment, the slave traders claimed it was all justified by the Catholic baptism. Prince Henry died in 1460, having brought his kingdom to the forefront of European colonial efforts and established the precedent for continued African slave training. By 1490, an estimated 2,000 black slaves arrived in Lisbon every year. As a product, West African slaves proved more popular in the North American, mostly Moroccan, slaves who had been captured before the Portuguese discovered much of the Western African coast. Though there were a handful of black people in Europe before Portugal's merchants entered the picture, these perfectly free and independent travelers were overwhelmed by the influx of thousands of slaves who were put to work in fields and domestic situations. It was at this point that the actual racial divide began to set into place, dark skin denoting a classless rebel of servitude that would not begin to be healed for several centuries. Portugal's imperial expansion afterward focused mostly on Guinea and the outlying islands of West Africa. In the 16th century, Portuguese sailors discovered the vast Pacific Ocean. The next great cartological development, from a European perspective, happened in 1492 at the expense of the great naval nation, Spain. One of the most significant events of the Renaissance took place when the Italian explorer named Cristoforo Colombo more commonly known as Christopher Columbus, sailed west and discovered land beyond any they had previously been mapped by Europeans. Columbo's discovery had several meaningful outcomes. More Europeans would immediately visit the so-called New World to draw maps and seek out saleable goods, and they would try to stake claim over it. 
the most significant monarchy in the early exploration of colonization of the Americas was that of Spain, since it was under the patronage of Queen Isabella of Castilla that the voyage had been conducted. Isabella originally agreed to fund Colombo's expedition on the expectation that he would find a quicker route to India and therefore increase Spain's potential earnings in the spice trade. When that plan failed, she quickly saw the promise of much more than a short journey to India. She saw a whole new continent to lead to the Catholic Church, dubbed Isabella the Catholic, by the Pope himself, the Queen of Castile believed that she was called by God to save the souls of the people across the Atlantic Ocean. Colombo and subsequent Spanish explorers could easily gain her favor by promising to preach Catholicism once they reached the shores of the New World, thereby hoping to convert the natives. Colombo and successive Spanish conquistadors made the premises they needed to make in order to find funding for their journeys and largely followed their own rules out of Europe. The first official European settlement of the Americas was a small colony of La Nivedad, found by Colombo in the, in the name of Spain. He left 39 settlers there in the December 12th of 1492 in what is now modern Haiti. Held by European descended Americans, as the man responsible for changing the future of the new world and the old world simultaneously. Colombo truly was a man of his own will, beholden to no one else. He participated in the genocide of non-hostile native communities of people, facilitated the, the trade of native slaves, including very young girls for sexual purposes, and required friendly native people to pay him tribute in the form of gold. Furthermore, Colombo was in fact not the first European to discover that part of the Americas, as Viking crews had already landed and settled modern Newfoundland nearly 500 years ago. Not to be left behind on the other side of the Atlantic, Portugal moved in soon enough to claim the large piece of South America that is now the large country of Brazil. Spain fought its own way across the central and southern lands of the Americas, exterminating native people, destroying ancient cities and structures, and rebranding them under Spanish flags. In this way, Spain founded Mexico. France took control of many Caribbean islands, and England and France gained control over much of North America. Ironically, the bulk of American landmass discoveries on the part of English sailor Henry Hudson, Portuguese explorer Ferdinand Magellan, and other counterparts were the result of expensive attempts to reach Asia by sailing west. Astronomers and sailors were confident by that point that the Earth was a globe, but the idea of sailing in the opposite direction of one's final destination was still uncomfortable for most. It took courage to sail westward across the Atlantic in search of India or China. But once Colombo landed in Salvador Island, others were motivated to attempt the same voyage. John Cabot reached Newfoundland in the name of England in 1497. Portuguese explorer Fernandes Labrador reached and mapped Newfoundland and Labrador in 1499. Pedro Alvarez Cabral found Brazil in 1500, again for Portugal, 
and Colombo himself found Venezuela and Panama, plus other southern locations in his next voyages. It was indeed an age of discovery, a time when the most powerful European kingdoms spread their wings. Navigators and builders developed stronger sailing vessels, and people became aware of their place in the rest of the world. Those who had the money and influence did so, took what they wanted and planted flags to justify their actions. For many generations of educated Renaissance Europeans, the physical world seemed to be opening up alongside the philosophical, religious, and scientific discoveries at home. For the inhabitants of those newly discovered parts of the world, it was a period of disease, political uncertainty, subjugation, and war that ultimately led to the immense boom of the African slave trade. Once more, thousands of black hostages were baptized and shipped away from home, only to find themselves in hostile land under the violent authority of whoever paid the most money. African and indigenous slaves were forced to do the bidding for their heavily armed European masters, further cementing the perceived divide in social hierarchy in relation to pale or dark skin. Even as Spain, England, Portugal, France, and other colonial powers slowly built their overseas empires, the status and relative quality of life for dark-skinned people did not improve. Women's education. Even before the oppression and exploration of Africans in Native Americas, there was the faucet of Dark Age Europe that was repeatedly excluded from higher learning. Regardless of age or wealth, women, from the poorest peasants to the noblest princesses, females were taught the lessons most pertinent to managing their households and kept out of extensive literacy, philosophy, science, and rhetoric lessons. Poor women learned their mothers, from their mothers how to prepare food, repair clothing, maintain gardens and livestock, while daughters of landowners, royals, and wealthy families were taught a watered-down version of such skills. When the Renaissance took hold in Europe, the importance placed on higher education finally started to include more girls and women. Not all men, and especially the wisest, shared the opinion that it is bad for women to be educated. But it's very true that many foolish men have claimed this because it displeased them that women knew more than they did. So wrote Christine de Paisin in her 15th century novel, The Book of the City of Ladies. It was an astonishing book and that not, not only used its contents to speak up for women, but that broke the, with tradition simply by having been written by a woman. Active as a writer in both Italy and France, de Paisin was born in Venice to a polymath father who served as a doctor, counselor, and court astrologer. Christine de Poison was one of the few females in the high Middle Ages to enjoy a full education, and let alone to pick up a quill and put stories on parchment. Finding herself a widow without legal recourse to her dead husband's estate, de Poison cared for her children by selling stories. She was popular enough to come to the attention of many members of the Venetian, Italian, and French courts, and the latter supported her as patrons. Much of the same vein as court painters, musicians, and entertainers, 
Emerging sport storytellers like de Paisan found a place for themselves among the wealthy. De Paisan was an early example of this phenomenon that grew more important over the successive centuries of the Renaissance, female professionalism. Women of both upper and lower classes in Europe were hugely underrepresented in literature, politics, and even the physical household of the Middle Ages. Females of noble families were kept under strict surveillance and taught how to conduct themselves quietly and respectively while maintaining their husband's home and tending to their children and servants. Though this overwhelmingly continued to be the norm during the Renaissance, there was a great deal more women allowed to pursue higher education and creative occupations than ever before. Several examples include none other than the royals of Europe themselves, Catherine de Medici of France, Mary Stuart, Queen of Scotland, and Mary and Elizabeth Tudor, as well as the wives of King Henry VIII. Of course, the education of females put the age-old question to the test. Do girls have the same intellectual capacity as the boys? Then as now, unfortunately, male decision-makers had trouble believing their oppressed sisters, wives, or mothers could handle the pressures of mathematics, science, literature, and government. De Pazin pushed back against the onslaught of patriarchy in her writing specifically addressing her belief that women's hands would flourish under excellent tutorship. If, I were, if it were customary to send little girls to school and teach them the same subjects as were taught to boys, they would learn just as fully as would understand the subtitles of all the other arts and sciences. For royal women, the opportunity to become highly educated became almost mandatory as it was for royal males. Both sons and daughters of mighty monarchs learned from their tutors as well as their parents the various methods of government and diplomacy that the kings could come to rely on for their queens to rule during the prolonged absences. This was the case with England's King Henry VIII and his first wife, Queen Catherine of Argonne. Henry and Catherine were matched by the royal parents to bring an end to the consistent political strife between their two kingdoms. Catherine, daughter of the infamous Isabel and Ferdinand, grew up in the brave, capable shadow of her commanding mother, probably as a direct result of such patronage and example. Queen Catherine took the Regency of England quite seriously when her Kingly husband was, was away fighting over French lands during 1513. With Henry VIII away, England's constant enemy, the Scots, took the chance to invade their northern neighbor. Between the quick administrations of Catherine and her husband's advisor, Lord Surrey, an enemy army was crushed by the King of Scotland himself, killed in battle. Catherine arranged for the blooded coat of Scotland's King James IV to be sent to her husband in France. Queen Catherine's education and her early exposure to military strategy via her mother and father proved satisfactorily in pairing her to succeed in a man's role. Proud of her achievements on the throne, Catherine made obviously certain that her only child and daughter, Mary, received as full an education as she had. To facilitate this goal, the Queen commissioned a book from Spanish humanist writer Juan Luis Vive, 
entitled The Education of a Christian Woman. V's book, subtitled A 16th Century Manual, covered various proposals, topics, as they reached to young unmarried women, married women, and twice married women, or widowed women. These lessons mostly explain how Catherine's ideal Christian lady should behave toward herself, her suitors, and her husband. Though the sciences were under intense development within England and the neighboring kingdoms, neither Tudor women nor average men, and particularly pressed to pursue scientific career. Rather, both were encouraged to develop their knowledge of religion and personally develop upon existing religious philosophy for the whole span of their lives. Henry VIII, his wives and children, were avid religious philosophers, particularly on the subject of the Church of England and Protestantism, in the exception of Mary's a staunch Catholic church like the Mother Mary. Queen Catherine didn't see the education of her daughter, but also became a trusted patron of Queen's College of Cambridge, as edu- the educational facility whose establishment and support was passed through the hands of many Renaissance queens of England, from Margaret of Anjou in 1848 to Elizabeth Woodville in 1465, then to Margaret Beaufort, mother of King Henry, Tudor VII, after the Wars of the Roses were con- conducted in 1485. Though her husband was not a regular donor to England's universities, Queen Catherine ensured that Queen's College was debt-free and even put more money into the establishment of St. John's College, which has now been a dear wish of the late Margaret Beaufort. Unfortunately, even the royal female patronage, women who by and large not allowed to earn a university degree until the 20th century. In early centuries, they could partnership and perhaps attend lectures or follow along with other classes if they had the permission of their fathers or male relatives. However, universities retained the domain of the male. It has been questioned whether or not the female sex actually experienced the European Renaissance at all. Galileo. One more in the Duchy of Florence, a polymath appeared in 1564 by the name of Galileo. Encouraged by his father to attend the University of Pisa, he joined the medical field. Instead, young Galileo found himself transfixed on the study of physical objects and their movements. He switched his study to mathematics and natural sciences as a result became one of the most important astronomers and physicists of his time. Development of an exciting piece of technology, the telescope, into astronomy's most important tool. Lenses were already changing how nearsighted and farsighted people saw the world. But when the unknown innovator realized that two lenses together could produce an exponential magnifying effect, the telescope was born. Galileo took his knowledge and crafted his own glasses, teaching himself how to to curve and align the lenses ideally so that the magnification effect was at its greatest. Galileo's eight times magnifying scope was purchased by the military, whom he had convinced he could use it to see the enemies before being spotted themselves. For himself, however, the new design had a more exciting purpose revealing the night sky. It was a scientific revelation, 
that immediately changed how Galileo and his students imagined the universe around their own planet. A proponent of Copernicus' heliocentric model of the universe, Galileo used his modified telescope to explore the celestial bodies of our own Milky Way galaxy. First, he turned the microscope to the moon and was shocked to discover that instead of a smooth flawless surface, the little round ball in the sky was converted to pockmarks and ridges. This discovery didn't mesh well with the biblical assumption that all heavenly bodies were perfect structures. Still, the greater surprise did not note the tiny stars surrounding Jupiter. After watching the movements of these little stars for several weeks, the astronomer realized they were neither stars nor planets, but orbiting moons. These were in themselves, to have it with such knowledge of such things was too large to keep to himself. So Galileo published The Starry Messenger in 1610 to share his findings with the rest of the world. It was an instant sensation invoking simultaneous praise and calls of blasphemy. In his book, Galileo didn't just explain the movements of Jupiter's moons or describe the marks on his own moon. He sketched out the regularly changing shape of Venus, whose shadow metamorphed into the planet from a small disk into a large crescent shape, a movement of sunlight and shadow that bellied the planet's solar orbit. It was proof of the Copernican model of the universe. Galileo's telescope observations of the sky didn't stop. He knew perfectly well that he was under the critical dangerous eye of the Inquisition. Using his own lenses, he observed the planet Saturn and kept careful sketches of its unusual appearance in his notes. First believing that the blurry objects on either side of Saturn were moons, Galileo was ultimately at a loss as to what the fixed arches would truly be. He referred to them as ears and was further perplexed by the ears disappeared from view in 1612, only to return in 1613. Not until 1655 would it be suggested that Saturn was actually surrounded by a fixed ring. By the Dutch astronomer Christian Huygens, modern scientists explained the disappearance of the planet's rings in 1612 by telling us Earth had moved into the same plane as the ring, rendering it too thin to be seen by Galileo's relatively weak telescope. Astronomy was not Galileo's only occupation outside of teaching mathematics. He was interested in physics and contrived various theories of motion and gravity that predate those of Newton. He also wrote extensively on the subject of ocean tides, a phenomenon he believed that the Earth in motion around the sun. His theory was incorrect since it posited that the water acted like a pendulum around the Earth's core, Earth's core but his observation provided detailed data for further study. Of course, scientific theories and, and profs, such as Galileo, achieved with the, their use of the telescope, were not without great criticism from the church. Some critics were merely curious as the Grand Duchess Christiana of Tuscany, answering her questions as to how his work fit with biblical knowledge, Galileo wrote to her to try to explain himself. Some years ago, as your Serene Highness well knows, I discovered that the heavens, many things that had not been seen before our own age. 
the novelty of these things, as well as some consequences which follow from them in contradiction to the physical notions commonly held among academic philosophers, stirred up against me in no small number of professors, as if I had placed these things in the sky with my own hands in order to upset nature and return the scenes. They seem to forget that the increase of known truths stimulates the investigation, establishment, and growth of the arts, not their, their, or their destruction, not their destruction. In time, the scientist was investigated by the Roman Inquisition. The trial took place in 1660, during which Pope Paul V formally asked Galileo to recant his assertion that the universe was centered around the sun. For his own well-being, the astronomer did so and was discharged safely from the court and custody of the Inquisition. After Galileo took greater care of works that he published, but when Pope Urban VIII came to power in 1623, he was elated due to the fact that two of them were on friendly terms, as Urban previously championed some of Galileo's earlier work. He committed to writing a book that was expressly commissioned by the new Catholic leader, and is in his excitement forgot to explicitly follow the Pope's instruction. Urban VIII asked Galileo to discuss points both for and against the heliocentric universe that explains which theory he professionally found more compelling. Instead, Galileo stated the only ports supporting the heliocentric theory. The book called Dialogue Concerning the Two Chief World Systems was published in 1632, and it was not to the Pope's liking. It may have been helped that the financial character of the side of geocentrism who Galileo claimed was based on Greek author Simplicius, seemed to speak like the Pope. Simplico was then, as now, easily constructed into simpleton. The same year, Galileo was called back to Rome to speak with the Inquisition. Threatened by torture, he maintained that he had not intended to promote heliocentrism in his book, and that he was only doing what had been requested of him by the Pope. He was not found guilty, but was declared very suspicious of heresy and therefore sentenced to be imprisoned. The sentence was carried out the next day, though Galileo was allowed to remain under house arrest instead of be taken away to the public prison. He remained sequestered at home for the remainder of his life.